Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Cuba, noises from the Movimiento San Isidro are growing louder. The pro-democracy movement started with scholars and artists. Now that it's absorbing other protest groups with other agendas, there seems to be a glimmer of hope for change. And given that Europe's ski resorts were so central to the spread of the coronavirus earlier in the year, you'd think a coordinated decision to shut them this season would be uncontroversial. The fact that it isn't tells you a lot about European cooperation. But first... No company. No company should have this much unchecked power over our personal information and our social interactions. American authorities' pushback against big tech firms sharpened yesterday with two lawsuits against Facebook, one filed by the Federal Trade Commission and another by the attorneys general of 48 states and territories. Attorney General Letitia James of New York, who led the state's investigation, called on the courts to halt the social media giant's anti-competitive conduct. Today, we are sending a clear and a strong message to Facebook and every other company that any efforts to stifle competition and hurt small businesses, reduce innovation and creativity, or cut privacy protections will be met with the full force of our offices. The Federal Trade Commission said Facebook's purchases of WhatsApp and Instagram had stifled competition and that it would push to make the company sell them off again. Facebook isn't the only object of regulatory scrutiny. In October, America's Justice Department filed a sweeping antitrust suit against Google. There's a growing consensus in America that the tech giants are just too giant. But entrenching in law what is fair for consumers and competitors will be no easy task. The lawsuit alleges that Facebook has behaved in an anti-competitive manner. Hal Hodson is The Economist's technology correspondent that it has used its market power as a social media giant in the United States to squash competition and to kind of maintain market dominance in a way that is unfair. And the lawsuits seek to address that. Central to the FTC's case are two acquisitions that Facebook made almost a decade ago, one of Instagram and one of WhatsApp. And the, the sense of the case is that essentially those acquisitions were anti-competitive and that by buying those young, fast-growing services, Facebook was buying up its future competition. And that if that hadn't happened, the sort of competitive dynamics of the social internet today would be much, much stronger because Instagram and WhatsApp would be their own thriving businesses. Is there not an argument to be made that, that WhatsApp and Instagram have grown as much as they have in the interim because they've been under the Facebook umbrella? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and this gets into kind of prophecy and reading the tea leaves very, very quickly. Facebook had a huge amount of money that it was able to pump into those services. And Facebook was able to introduce those services to all of the users of Facebook in various ways and to make connections between the two. Uh, so, yes, there, there's absolutely an alternative present where Instagram and WhatsApp don't exist because Facebook destroyed them instead of buying them. But we can't really know. And in some ways, that is some of the contentiousness about this case is that it, it, it sort of tries to, you know, present alternative futures that would be better. And it's hard to say whether they really would be. And, and the, the central charge here is that these practices have hurt the consumer. How in practice has the consumer been harmed here? Well, the basic idea would be that it has reduced consumer choice. My personal view is that that's not quite the right way to think about it. The real way that Facebook's market dominance hurts the consumer is by making it more expensive for companies to market their products. And that's because Facebook is so dominant in its specific vertical of social media marketing that anybody who wants to bring a product to market, any small business, kind of has to go through Facebook. And that means that probably the prices for reaching Facebook's consumers are higher than they should be. Those high costs get passed on to consumers, and that's how it hurts consumers to have Facebook be so dominant. Is that to say that the, the regulators are barking up the wrong tree here? I just think that when you look at the other apps in the marketplace, you look at the growth of TikTok and the, the perseverance of Snapchat, people spend as much time on Snapchat as they do on Instagram these days, pretty much. It's just hard to say that the, there's no competition in these areas. WhatsApp has competition with iMessage and Telegram and all kinds of different things, Signal. So for each individual app that is inside the Facebook universe, there's loads of competition but the problem is that for the specific service of social media marketing, Facebook really does dominate that. And what has Facebook said about the charges? Well, one of Facebook's first things that they say is, hey, FTC, you guys approved both of these transactions back in the day. And now you're telling us that actually that was anti-competitive. Uh, Facebook makes the fairly reasonable point that it would have been you know, better to know this at the time than a decade later when lots of things have changed and they're going to have to unwind loads and loads of things. And not least the fact that it, it makes the environment feel kind of uncertain if one of America's biggest regulators is changing its mind 10 years later. And so what about that beyond the effects for Facebook and, uh, and its properties and the users of all of those different apps? How do you think this lawsuit might uh, cast a shadow over the industry more, more widely? Well, there has been a shadow over the industry for quite a while already. The tech lash is going along in full force and governments around the world are looking at ways to curb what they see as the sort of unacceptably high levels of power that these companies have. But I think that the uncertainty for businesses and technology companies is quite a real problem. In a funny way, it reminds me of what the American government was trying to do to TikTok to unwind its acquisition of Musical.ly many years after the fact. And one of the biggest complaints that we heard about that was, well, hey, how can any foreign companies feel confident in making acquisitions in America if the government's essentially just going to change the rules post hoc and say, actually, now we have a problem with this? So I, I, I think that it does increase the amount of uncertainty, the way that the FTC has gone about this, focusing on those acquisitions. And so how do you think this particular lawsuit then will, will play out? Well, Facebook has a pile of cash. The amount of money it makes is very contingent on the integration of these apps. It, in fact, it's big growth property. The app where the amount of money it is making is accelerating the fastest is Instagram. Facebook's not going to go quietly on this and they have a huge amount of money to fight it. So I expect this to be in the courts for a very long time. 
There's also a question about the transition between American administrations. A lot of folks are saying, oh, this is a Trump action because, you know, it's sort of backlash against the social media companies. But it sort of remains to be seen how independent from the White House this sort of thing is and whether will, will Biden being in office change it? We don't yet know. The Europeans will absolutely be watching this. They have similar complaints. I think in, in both cases in Europe and America, the regulators still don't quite know exactly what they want to do about it. And, you know, the focus on the acquisitions by the FTC suggests that, that is the, that's the clearest thing that they've got. And I think the Europeans will be watching to see how that is received in court, what kind of arguments Facebook makes to rebut those charges, um, and will probably hone its own actions against Facebook, which we all expect to be on the way uh, in response. So to your mind, this is just the beginning of a, of a broader battle then between regulators and Facebook? I think one of the important things about this this action and all of the actions against all of the big American tech companies is that even though these issues have been around for years, right, the Instagram acquisition from Facebook is almost a decade old at this point, the regulators themselves are still only just getting to grips with how these companies work, what technologies they are made of, where they can actually exert the influence of the law to change things. And so I don't think that this suit is necessarily the last word in how Facebook is going to be regulated. I expect the whole approach to shift and evolve going forward. And the best outcome would be that governments get better at understanding how the technology companies work and understanding what sensible interventions they should be making. And my own view is that I don't necessarily think that unwinding decade-old transactions is the best approach. Thanks very much for joining us, Hal. Thanks for having me, Jason. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. As a country without a free press, political parties in a real sense or even unregulated access to the internet, there isn't much space in Cuba's society for protests. But in recent weeks, demonstrations from a group of artists have made it out onto the streets. So there was a protest on the morning of November 27th outside the culture ministry in downtown Havana. Roseanne Lake is The Economist's Cuba correspondent. Nearly 300 people gathered in front of it, which is something very uncommon in Cuba. Protests or gatherings of that size are simply not tolerated. It was also a very long event. It started early in the day and ended early the next morning at around 2 a.m. I spoke to one person at the protest, Camila Ramirez Lobon, and she explained that there was a lot of joy and a lot of pleasure because people really believed that they were participating in an unprecedented event in Cuba, holding a public protest. 
Um, but she also said that the crowd was surrounded by security. From the very morning when people started arriving, there were security officers dressed as security officers, but also in plain clothes, very obviously taking pictures, video. Just taking note of who had arrived. And so what prompted people to, to take that risk, to go out and, and assemble in those kinds of numbers? Something else somewhat unprecedented. On November 26th, there was a raid on an apartment in San Isidro, which is a poor neighborhood of Havana. And it was something of a violent raid. So using the pretext that one of the people inside of this apartment had flouted a COVID-19 quarantine regulation, agents dressed in medical gowns broke down the door and they arrested the 14 people inside. Now, most of these people had been inside the apartment for about eight days, and a few of them were on a hunger and thirst strike in protest of the arrest of a young rapper named Denis Solis, who had been imprisoned and is still in prison because he was accused of disrespecting authority. And this movement took place inside this apartment is part of a wider protest movement known as the Movimiento San Isidro, so named after the neighborhood where these 14 people were. And it's basically a motley collective that includes artists, academics, journalists, rappers, dissident poets, and even some scientists who are advocating for freedom of expression and democratic values, which obviously in Cuba can be complicated. And so what are the origins behind that movement that was going on in San Isidro? Well, the Movimiento San Isidro has a bit of history. It started around September 2018 in response to something called the Decreto 349. So the Decree 349 was proposed to restrict cultural activity not authorized by the cultural ministry, which was obviously not very well received by artists because they perceived that they were going to be censored. So at the time, there was a protest outside of Cuba's legislature. And as a result, the government delayed enforcement of Decreto 349. This whole movement stayed active. And so that San Isidro movement then has kind of blossomed and then finds itself outside the culture ministry. I mean, how did the government respond to that? Slowly. They took their time to actually find somebody to come and, and speak with the crowd that assembled. About 30-odd people were finally admitted to speak with the vice minister of, of culture, Fernando Rojas, around 9 p.m. He met with them for nearly five hours and essentially promised that there would be more of a dialogue between the government and this movement. It was a bit of a short-lived promise because the following day, the state-run media launched a campaign against the Movimiento San Isidro and the city was blanketed with a heavy security presence to discourage repeat gatherings. And so how this protest went outside the culture ministry is, is kind of reflective of how little pockets of, of dissent are, are dealt with? It is, except this one was a bit of an X level. So you do have movements like these that have existed for the past couple of years. For example, in 2017, Cuba's Cuenta Propistas, or entrepreneurs, sent a letter to the Ministry of Labor proposing reforms to their sector, right, to make their jobs easier. And they were ignored for a very long time. And, you know, at some point, the government even canceled events that they were organizing amongst themselves to promote entrepreneurship. And in 2018, the government even threatened to restrict each entrepreneur to one line of business, and that was a step too far. The Cuenta Propistas threatened to strike, and the rules were eased. You see a similar pattern emerge with gamers. So Cuba has this fascinating private intranet known as SNET. It's been entirely built and financed by private citizens, usually young kids, who want to game with each other, right? Because connectivity in Cuba is very limited. So in May 2019, the government restricted the use of these networks, and gamers were very disappointed. They gathered outside the Ministry of Communications, and... 
eventually the government conceded a tiny bit. They didn't leave with ideal circumstances, but this is all goes to say that these things have happened, but Movimiento San Isidro really took things to another level because it was a much bigger crowd, and it seems to sort of be the crystallization of these different groups coming together and finding some sort of common reason to express their discontent with how things are being carried out. So is that to say that the Movimiento San Isidro will kind of absorb all of those different kinds of discontent and and dissent and, and, and be stronger for it, do you think? It doesn't sound like that will happen so neatly. These things take time. But it is telling that outside of the ministry that day, you had very prominent Cuban artists. And they came out in defense of the people gathered there. They're not considered radical. They're well-established. They're cultural icons in Cuba. And they came out in support of the protesters from the movement. So it's it's sort of been taken to another level. And if you speak to people like Carlos Manuel Alvarez, he was one of those detained from the raid at the apartment in San Isidro. His view on the situation is that there are signs of an emerging collective unconformity in Cuba, which I thought was very interesting. And he said that young people with very different ideas gathered that day in front of the ministry, many of them not even knowing why they were there, but they just felt the need to go. This was his way of expressing that this was possibly Cuba's first step in developing what might eventually be a civic culture. So what's the next step? Where do these protests go from here? That's all a bit unclear. What is certain is that the internet has played a huge role in the flourishing of these movements, right? It's made them harder to control. It's made it easier for people to gather, to communicate, to share information. Now more than 60% of Cubans have access to a connection. And there are people who refer to this as something of an explosion of activism, right? You have different groups, those who feel fervently about the arts. Then you have the animal rights activists. You have feminist groups. You have those who rally for LGBTQ rights. So if these groups sort of find each other and are able to gather some momentum, that could move the needle a bit. But it's not clear that that will happen. We know that the Communist Party would obviously not be very keen on that. And so I think the best way of reading the situation is actually what Carlos Manuel Alvarez explained to me. He said, look, a lot of us are not optimistic, but we are enthusiastic. We feel like what happened that day outside of the Ministry of Culture, it helped us change gears. We went from zero to one. And in a place like Cuba, the difference between zero and one is very significant. Roseanne, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Europeans love skiing. In total, they spend roughly 200 million days a year on the slopes, about the same as the rest of the world combined. And that doesn't even take into account the après ski time, reveling in crowded bars. But this year, as with so many other pursuits, Europe's rules on skiing are a bit fragmented. Some countries want to ignore the clear-cut public health issue and go off-piste. And that has more cautious neighboring countries pieced off. There's been big COVID-19 outbreaks in ski resorts at the start of the year. Lots of super spreader events. It sounds like an easy thing to try and avoid to keep numbers down, especially in the middle of a second wave. Duncan Robinson is our Brussels bureau chief. But it's actually proven deeply, deeply controversial. How so? 
For the simple reason that some countries don't want to do it. So while France, Germany and Italy have all agreed that it's a bit too dangerous, it's an unnecessary risk, it's not worth it, Austria has decided it would press on with the season and so was pushing back against that as much as possible. It took weeks of sort of diplomatic wrangling between Berlin and Vienna, but they did eventually reach some form of compromise where Austria is going to keep its slopes effectively shut until Christmas Eve and then locals will be able to ski on the slopes. But skiing is an outdoor sport. Is it really such a concern in terms of spreading COVID-19? So the act of skiing itself, strapping two planks of wood to your feet and sliding down a hill, that's no more dangerous in terms of COVID than riding a bike, but it's the rest of it. There are lots of skiing traditions. A lot of them involve drinking lots and, and singing lots. You have crowded bars full of people breathing and sweating, and you have these very, very crowded queues for ski lifts. Even that noted mountain pastime of yodeling occasionally crops up. All of these things do mash together. It's quite bad things to do during a pandemic. Okay, so in that case, what should the rules be? Who is actually in charge? So at the moment, the EU's got this sort of mishmash of sovereignty. Some things are decided at a European level, some things are decided at a national level. And skiing is decided at a national level. It's effectively up to every individual government of whether they shut the slopes or not. But at the same time, it would be a bit silly if on one side of a valley in the Alps, you are allowed to ski, but on another, you are forbidden because of a health crisis. So it's a sort of slightly absurd situation that the continent's found itself in. And the EU in particular is designed to stop these races to the bottom, to stop countries from effectively undercutting, which is sort of what's happening, but from a health perspective rather than an economic perspective. And what does that tell you then about the nature of European cooperation when it comes to things like COVID-19? It shows that it's still very, very difficult. It's very big business in some countries. So Austria gets about 4% of its GDP just from its winter ski season. For comparison, Germany gets about 5% from its car industry. So the equivalent would be the Austrian Chancellor being put with Angela Merkel and saying, hey, would you mind closing down your car industry for a few months? There's a climate emergency going on. That wouldn't go down very well. Equally, being asked to curtail the ski season hasn't gone down very well in Vienna. Duncan, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.